Hey there, Alabaster Jar listeners. Before we begin today's episode, I want to invite you to join us on Thursday, January 27th for the launch of the Center for Women in Leadership's webinar series. This is a monthly series of free webinars designed to equip and empower you for leadership. This month, we will be joined by Margot Tirado, a psychotherapist, emotional habits coach, and professional speaker with over 25 years of clinical experience. She will teach you how to own your own perspective, learn how to manage any fear keeping you from stepping into leadership, and how to use your body language to exude confidence. You can register at cwlnorthern.com webinars. Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. Today's episode features a previously recorded live webinar with Dr. Beth Felker-Jones about her Seminary Now course on a Christian theology of sex. Beth received her doctorate from Duke University, and she teaches theology at Northern Seminary. Beth is a host here at the Alabaster Jar podcast, and she is the author of several books, including Faithful, A Theology of Sex, which you will hear more about in today's episode. Welcome to this Seminary Now live event. Seminary Now is a streaming video platform delivering exclusive theological and ministry courses from a diverse group of professors and authors. Welcome, Beth. It's so nice to have you join us. It's great to be with you, Lynn, and with everybody who's joining us live. Uh, It's such a privilege to work with you at Northern, and uh, I'm excited uh, to get to talk to you all about uh, some of the things that matter to me and about the really exciting Seminary Now platform. There's so many courses I would love to take on the platform, um, and I think you'll see a lot of fun offerings on there. Absolutely, absolutely. Some other fun offerings that are coming And that is uh, two Doctor of Ministry programs, one called Doctrine and Ministry, and the other called uh, Women, Theology, and Leadership. You are leading the Doctrine and Ministry DMIN program. What excites you about that program? Everything excites me about this program. I believe with all my heart that theology is good for the church and we need pastor theologians, ministry professional theologians who can work with historic, beautiful Christian doctrine um, and reinterpret creatively for new times and new places. Uh, Those of you who are with us tonight are the first to hear about this. We're officially announcing on Thursday, I think. Um, So I am am so excited to get in touch with people who want to learn more about how theology really is for the church. And I think these programs offer something unique in the demon landscape, uh, which I really uh, believe is Beneficial, exciting. Yeah. What are you excited about, Lynn? Yes, for my women, theology, and leadership. Well, I, um, like you, believe uh, that theology is so important for for the church. And uh, I want to provide a space for women who are in ministry and in leadership to think deeply and theologically about the calling of God on their lives and uh, the problems that they face and working uh, to... uh, through that and hopefully coming uh, to some 
solutions uh, that we can share with the whole, uh, with the church and beyond. Yeah. Well, this live event is brought to you in partnership with Northern Seminary and its Center for Women in Leadership. The discussion will, that we have here will be published as an episode of The Alabaster Jar, which is a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly and Beth um, that looks at current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. So again, Beth, I'm thrilled that, uh, that you're here. And well, as we get ready uh, to get into uh, our conversation about Beth's book, Faithful, um, I want to just remind everyone, Beth's Seminary Now course, which is called A Christian Theology of Sex, is also um, being promoted. And to get started, I'd like us to watch this short two-minute trailer video. Sex is a topic that matters. It's personal. It's about our day-to-day -day lives, about our bodies, about what we want, how we relate to other people. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament speak to us about how our bodies honor God, and the Bible speaks frankly about sex. What if sex is not about a list of rules, a set of do's and don'ts? Christian sexual ethics have everything to do with who God is and with what it means to be human. Why do Christians recognize the whole world, including bodies, including physicality, including sexuality, as good? Because God, who is good, created everything, material and spiritual, bodies and souls. God frees us for faithfulness. God frees us for healthy, happy, holy marriages, blessed with the gift of good sex. And God frees us to live the good life in healthy, happy, holy singleness and chastity. I invite you to participate in this class in order to develop a Christian theology of sex. This class is about who God is and the very good life God wants for us. It's about connecting our most basic Christian beliefs creation, sin, redemption, to our lives. Join me as we think about how sex fits into God's story and about what it means that our bodies are for the Lord. That class looks so exciting. I'm really excited to, to watch it. Let me ask just kind of this big question to open it up. Why, why did you write this book? <laughs> um, my kids wish I hadn't, I think. <laughs> if mom writes a book about sex, that's apparently a highly embarrassing thing. Um, I wrote this book that one answer is because a friend who was editing the series asked me to, um, and it's someone who I respect and care for, and so he talked me into it. Uh, another answer, probably a better answer, is because questions about a theology of sex touch deeply on some of my main concerns as a theologian. Uh, my big picture work is about the body, uh, the significance of the body, uh, God's care for and love for and purposes for our body. And sexuality, of course, is wrapped up with that in all kinds of ways. Um, and it's a question that people care about. Uh, I'm now teaching seminarians at Northern, but I've taught undergrads for the last 
17 years um, and uh, no youth pastor will be surprised to hear that uh, a teacher of undergrads gets a lot of questions about sexuality. Theology matters for our real lives, for the things we actually care about, the things we have questions about. And so um, though I never particularly thought I wanted to be someone who talks about sex in public, uh, I wrote the book. Yes, well, and I'm so glad you did. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Can you highlight for us the main ideas, two or three of the main ideas that you get, you try to push through in this book? Yeah, I'll name three of my favorites. Uh, the first is about the goodness of sexuality uh, as part of God's good creation and the significance theologically of thinking about that goodness. Uh, often we Christians are taught uh, a lot about the problems with sexuality. And of course there are problems because this is a sinful world and we are sinners. Um, but we haven't always thought well about the goodness of what God has made and of God's intentions uh, for us as embodied creatures. And so I really want to help people reflect on that um, and claim uh, sexuality as a good gift uh, for all of us. Uh, a second point is about the opposite of goodness, I suppose, about sin. Um, and one of the fun things I got to do in the book, fun for me, uh, was to explore the range of biblical descriptions of sexual sin. Um, we often think of sexual sin as falling in a very limited range. Uh, don't do this or that, right? Um, but scripture actually has a much more comprehensive view of what um, sex gone wrong looks like. And it's really uh, important to pay attention to that, not just for people who aren't married, uh, but for uh, people who are uh, as well. And uh, scripture's definition or descriptions of sexual sin can really help us reorient our understanding um, of goodness and of when that goodness goes wrong. Um, and then the third point that's uh, pretty big in the book and which I just think is fascinating has to do with uh, conditions in the Roman Empire uh, during the emergence of early Christianity and how countercultural Christian teaching about sexuality was in that empire. Um, and Christian teaching about sexuality remains countercultural um, in every culture and in, in every empire. But I think there's a lot we can learn uh, from our early sisters and brothers in the faith who were um, announcing a way of living to the world that was super surprising um, and not at all what was expected in Rome. Um, and so exploring some of those particularities um, is something I enjoyed doing in the book as well. Yeah. So goodness, sin, and empire. Oh, wow. Well, that's a, I'd love to take apart each one of those, but I, um, and maybe we will during the question time. Uh, but how about diving in just a little bit deeper in one or two key specific teachings that you found uh, people really resonated with or found important in the book? Mm -hmm. Um. The biggest claim I want to make in the book um, is that sex is about more than just sex. It's about how we witness in the world, um, about how we tell the story of who God is and of what God has done in our lives uh, in the world. And so uh, in scripture, uh, we find an analogy between uh, married human lovers, right? Um, and God and his relationship with his people. Uh, that's an analogy that uh, goes uh, from the Old Testament all the way uh, through to Revelation. Um, and if that's an analogy to help us think about who God is, um, it's an analogy that help, 
can help us think about how we witness to who God is. Uh, the overwhelming uh, story that's being told there in scripture is that while we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Um, and so I want to help us think about how our faithfulness uh, in terms of sexuality with our bodies in our very flesh right, uh, is a sign about God. Uh, it's a story about God. It, it says something uh, to the world about who God is and what God is like. Um, it's a miracle, really, right? A faithful marriage is, is a miracle. Uh, and it's a miracle that testifies to God's faithfulness uh, to us um, and his refusal uh, to break his promises. Um, so throughout the book, I'm exploring that analogy, uh, how uh, sex, uh, the sexual relationship is a little bit like God's relationship with his people. Not exactly like, right? It's an analogy it breaks down as well, um, but it, it gives us a lot to think about. Um, I think the other just really big picture thing I want to do in the book um, is present a positive vision of human sexuality, of Christian sexuality. Um, many Christians who I meet um, believe that they should behave Christianly in terms of sex, um, but they don't have much sense of why that might be the case. And so connecting the why to who God is, um, to what God wants for us as people, uh, to God's good intentions for our bodies uh, is something that is really important to me in the book. Not just don't do this or that, but uh, why do Christians believe these things? Um, why do we, like people in ancient Rome, uh, uh, teach something that's so very countercultural, so different from what our world has to say about sex? Yeah, yeah. Well, and you've hinted at this already, but uh, what are some of the mistakes that people make when they think about human sexuality? And maybe you could say both in the church and then in the culture at large. Oh, in the church and in the culture at large. Okay, I was thinking first about the church, and I'll name a few mistakes uh, that seem to me to happen again and again. Um, one, I think, is a really contemporary mistake. Um, and this is the church focusing only on the most contentious issues, right? Um, I meet many young people who've received from their churches, uh, the only teaching they've received from their churches about sexuality is about um, LGBTQ questions, that's it. They haven't talked about um, a basic kind of positive vision of sexuality. So I think of focusing only on contentious issues um, is a mistake. Um, a second mistake, and uh, this one is huge, is ignoring singleness, uh, ignoring uh, the importance of singleness as a way to live a faithful embodied Christian life. Um, and in my book and in the course in seminary now, uh, I try very hard uh, to present a theology of sexuality which is relevant to single people, um, which encourages all Christians, both married and single, uh, to remember that single people exist, to recognize them as important, contributors to the body of Christ. Um, and if married people can witness to God's faithfulness with their faithfulness in marriage, single people too are witnesses to God's faithfulness um, in their faithfulness uh, to God uh, and in um, their faithfulness in um, uh, living a celibate life. Um, so uh, only focusing on contentious issues, uh, forgetting singleness, and the third I'm gonna describe as throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, Which is the, an interesting uh, choice of words <laughs> as we think about human sexuality and sometimes what happens 
when we engage in sexuality. Yeah. Babies, baths, yep. Uh -huh. yep. Uh, um, uh, here I'm thinking of uh, the ways that folks in the church um, are rightly critical of some of the ways that they've been taught about sexuality. Um, so um, some Christians will use the phrase purity culture uh, to describe a way of teaching about sexuality, uh, which was popular in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, uh, and which was undoubtedly very, very damaging in, in lots of ways. Um, it's, it's right to critique that. Um, I do some of that in the course as well. Uh, but I think the answer to purity culture is not to throw out sexual ethics, right? The baby with the bath water. Um, the answer to purity culture is a really more holistic and biblical sexual ethics, right? So just one example of that. Um, many people complain that Christian purity culture uh, focused, does focus too much on female sexuality uh, without holding men accountable. I think that's true, that absolutely happens. Um, the answer is not to not hold women accountable. The answer is to hold men accountable too. Um, and I, I say this all the time. I think the most um, surprising and countercultural thing about New Testament sexual ethics is that they're clearly for men. Um, they're not just for women, they're for men too. And so if we as the church have continued um, a problem that also existed in the ancient world, acting as though only women needed to be chased, for instance, uh, we have the scriptures to correct us there. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that was problems within the church, problems outside the church. Woo, yeah, um, <laughs> we have those too, don't we? I, I think um, it's just a really chaotic landscape in the world. Um, and a lot of people don't know how to make sense of it. Uh, I'm reading a contemporary novel right now uh, in which the main characters are 20-something uh, young women. Um, and uh, at one point in the novel, one of them uh, says, you know, in the old days, we would have been married with kids by now. And I'm not saying we should do that. That would be crazy, right? <laughs> that would be crazy. Nobody would do that. Um, but at least it gave a purpose to sort of life, right? Um, and so they're, they're sort of reflecting, the characters are reflecting on the kind of chaos of, of their lives. And I think um, uh, the sexual revolution and so-called sexual freedom lead to a lot of chaos uh, for folks. Um, and particularly uh, for women, I think in uh, the landscape of supposed sexual freedom, there's a lot of pressure for women to do things that they might not want to do, um, but which uh, they feel like they have to, to live up to the cultural ideal of the sexy, young, adventurous woman, what have you. Um, anyway, the world's crazy. It's, it's crazy out there. Um, and uh, purity culture is bad, but so is being told you have to sleep with everyone you meet when you're 20. Um, and again, we have something uh, good as an alternative uh, in scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. My, My uh, next, next question, question was to, to think about how we might apply this to uh, kids and young adults. But as it happens, uh, Pastor John, who is paying very close attention, beat me to the punch. Thank you so much for doing the work you're doing, he says. Does the book help address how we can help our teenagers develop a theologically sound sexuality? Yeah, what do you think? For that question, Pastor John, I think it's um, a very, very important question. Uh, when the book came out, I gave my teenager a copy and she hid it deep in her closet. Um, but I like to believe maybe she secretly read it. Um, uh, 
I like to think that the book and the course on seminary now would be appropriate for teenagers. Um, uh, it certainly deals with mature content, um, but um, I think that our teaching, our catechism for uh, teens need to, needs to be frank uh, and open. And so um, I would invite uh, parents or youth pastors, other pastors um, to cover this material with teenagers. Um, so the book isn't explicit about how to talk to your teens about sex. Um, instead, it says the things that I would want my teens, that I do want my teens uh, to know about sex um, and hopefully would invite them into that conversation. And that's key, isn't it, I guess, to, to start a conversation. I think so. Um, frank conversation is is really important. Uh, in my years of teaching undergrads about sexuality, I think the number one thing I heard from them was that they wished their parents had talked to them about this stuff. Um, again, I think my kids would disagree, but um, but I heard it again and again from young men and women. Yeah. How does how does human sexuality that category? impact our broader understanding of theology. I mean, you, as you've already said, you're very committed to Christian doctrine, talking about doctrine and how, how it should impact how we think and how we live theologically. How does human sexuality fit into our larger understanding of theology as a whole? Yeah. Um, in all kinds of uh, really interesting ways. Uh, as I noted earlier, my kind of broadest interest the theologically is in theology of the body. And when I was doing my graduate study uh, in uh, theology, uh, ways that the body connects to Christian theology uh, kept striking me um, as very important. Um, and for me at that time as new. Uh, they weren't new. They were things that are there deep in the Christian tradition. But um, for whatever reason, uh, the connections between Christian theology and the body uh, were pieces I hadn't really thought about or learned about before that point. So what I was noticing in graduate school was the body connects to every doctrine, right? Uh, the doctrine of creation. Uh, God made everything, both body and soul, both heaven and earth, and it's all good, right? Uh, the doctrine of the incarnation uh, is clearly focused on uh, human bodies and particularly on the body of Jesus, right? The doctrine of the resurrection of the body uh, is clearly focused on the body. Um, and throughout Christian history, when we've thought about theology of the body, there have been two major ethical issues uh, that we almost always turn to next. Those issues are eating and sexuality. Um, I think that makes sense because those are really obvious everyday physical kinds of uh, aspects of our lives, right? No, no person um, can avoid thinking about food or sex um, uh, in their life. And so uh, those have often come up as uh, ways to um, make the theology of the body play out on the ground. Um, so in every major place in Christian theology, um, the most basic aspects of our lives, including sex, eating, playing, uh, other things as well, right, um, are implicated. They're, they're drawn up and uh, brought in. And uh, to me, that's really exciting, right? Theology isn't off somewhere in an ivory tower, not connected to our bodies and our lives. Um, it's making claims on our bodies uh, at every point. Jesus in his body is making claims on our bodies uh, at every point. Um, and sex is just one really salient example of that, um, one which uh, affects us deeply as human beings. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've talked, talked about, about um, a 
a couple of times how your um, kids aren't aren't necessarily thrilled that that you've written this, uh, and I I just I get it I totally get it, but I also wonder have you reflected on why it sometimes feels scary to talk about sex and and the word that comes to my mind is intimate. Mm -hmm. um, it feels a little bit different than food sometimes, although we can also have, well, there yep. are also struggles there, but I mean, just sure. can you kind of tease that apart a little bit? Why it feels scary? I think that word intimate really gets at it, right? Um, while it's important to speak freely in the Christian church about sex in as much as we want to teach well about it, we want to think well about it. Uh, there are aspects of human sexuality that are obviously and rightly private, right? Uh, which is part of why I'm laughing about being somebody who's written about this and, and talks about this and why my children roll their eyes or, or tell me to stop talking when, when these things come up. Um, uh, it goes right you know, to the core of who we are, to our personhood. Um, sexuality is not just sort of something off over here, but um, but it's right here, right? Um, because we are created as embodied human beings and our bodies are right here. They're not additional addendums we're carrying around. They're, they're the heart of who, who we are. Um, so I think that that rightly private nature um, of the sexual relationship in a marriage um, and of some of the things that go with it are part of what create that um, friction maybe between a parent and child uh, at the idea of, of talking about uh, such things. Um, there seems to be a little bit of shame left in this world and maybe that's where it plays out, right? Um, in many areas of our culture, we've lost all um, privacy around intimacy, um, all boundaries around what we will or won't talk about, um, but they persist between parents and children and um, I don't think that's a bad thing as much as I'll keep pushing to talk about it with my kids, right? Yeah. yeah. Along these same lines, Pastor John has another question, or he mentions um, the author Marva Dawn, who speaks about social sexuality. And is that part of what you found to be part of uh, biblical theology? Um, it maybe, um, and, and maybe if you've, uh, if you want to speak a little bit to Marva Dawn's idea of social sexuality for us, and then whether you found that to be part of biblical sexuality. Yeah, so I love Marva Dawn, and I've read her book, um, I believe it's called Sexual Character, uh, Beyond Technique to Intimacy, which is a great title. Uh, I highly recommend it. I don't remember precisely how she uses that term social sexuality, uh, though I might presume that she's uh, referring to the ways that uh, sex is never isolated and individual, even though we say that it's private and isolated and individual, it's connected to our communities um, in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, one of the most important things about a marriage, right, is that it's public and it's social. Uh, a marriage is not just two people agreeing that they're gonna have sex and stay hang out together with the rest of their lives, right? It's two people agreeing that in public, um, in front of their family and their friends and their church um, and making vows, which have a public accountability factor attached to those. Um, 
and I think everything in the scriptures is social in this sense, right? Um, God loves us as individuals, but uh, God intends us always for community, um, uh, both the community of the family and the community of the church and the community of wider society. And so to pretend that sexuality can be merely private um, or merely individual is always gonna be a lie. Um, it's one we tell a lot in our culture. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to uh, switch gears just a little bit here or expand maybe the conversation just a little bit. Jenny has asked whether you could speak to the theology of the spectrum of the LGBTQ sexuality. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what theology of spectrum means. Maybe the question of um, whether uh, sexual desire is primarily a binary question. Um, uh, or whether it for everybody is somewhat more fluid than that, uh, which is a, a question that gets debated. So if that's what you're pointing to, um, Jenny, um, I'll say I, maybe just this, um, that I'm not sure it matters as much as we think we matter how precisely desire works. Um, what matters a lot more is the direction of our desires to and for God um, and the discipline of our desires um, uh, within the vows and the accountability uh, of, of marriage. Um, so I, I wouldn't claim to be able to weigh in completely um, on questions that are debated in LGBTQ circles about how exactly all this all this plays out. But I do have a strong sense that um, some of those questions are secondary to the bigger Christian questions about how desire is is for and to God and is ordered by God. If that makes Yeah, it does. And uh, if I could just uh, follow up a little bit on that. Um, when you think about the resurrected body, the body that that we will have, how how does that connect maybe with uh, Jenny's question and with desire? You know, when you when we think about the right ordering of desires, to me, I think of for a purpose, right? And that purpose is eventually leading to life eternal in a raised and glorified body mm -hmm. uh, with Christ. And so is that, um, how, how does that truth impact how we understand desire now? Yeah, I could talk for a long time here, so I'll try to be brief, Lynn, and you can you can prod me uh, for more if, if you want. Um, uh, so I started thinking about these questions in relationship to the resurrection of the body, uh, reading uh, Augustine, um, Augustine of Hippo, late fourth, early fifth century, North African bishop, super influential, even if you've never heard of him, He's influenced your, your thinking about Christian faith, uh, for sure. Um, Augustine answers a question, uh, which is uh, floating around in his community. Uh, and the question is, uh, will there be women at the resurrection? Uh, okay. Hmm. Which is an interesting question. And some people said no. Um, women are obviously a problem. Um, uh, and so for everything to be made new, for everything to be made right, we have to get rid of the problem. <laughs> and so uh, women will become men or we'll all be de-sexed, de-gendered in the resurrection um, such that our um, embodied particularity is no longer part of our, our, pers our personhood. I guess it says, nope, 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 nope. There will be women at the resurrection um, because what God made, he will redeem. 
and when I first saw that, uh, it struck me as deeply right, um, an affirmation uh, that God, what God has made, he will redeem. Uh, if you know a little bit about Augustine, you may know that um, he had various hangups about sexuality. It was hard for him. Uh, he struggled with lust. Um, he had experiences in his youth, which he later regretted. Um, and so I think it's really remarkable that despite those worries, uh, he imagines a way for us to be together uh, in our embodied flesh, um, still sexed, still gendered, um, but for that embodied flesh to be about the praise of God. Uh, and so he specifically says, and this, this is a little wild, right? But uh, women will still have their female parts. <laughs> And instead of using them for baby making, uh, we will gaze on them in direct praise to God. Uh, now you don't have to buy. Awesome. I mean, you don't I have to buy exactly that, that right? Yeah. But if he's imagining that we can be together, um, and then our desires, all of our desires, including the desires that are attached to the beauty of our bodies, right, might be gathered up uh, into praise. Um, that seems right to me. I, I think that's right. Uh, it's all supposed to be gathered up into praise and not by getting rid of it, um, not by wiping it out, but because God has made us, he will redeem us um, finally and fully, including uh, the most embodied aspects of our lives. Um, a contemporary theologian, Sarah Coakley, uh, who I'm a big fan of, uh, suggests that desire is a kind of clue to the fact that we were made to want and to love God. Right. Um, and so she does some exploring of uh, theology of sexuality uh, in that key, um, seeing desire as this clue to our to our desire for God. And so um, if that's right, and it seems seems quite possibly right to me, again, then the point of desire would be to go not to stop right at another human, but to be gathered past and through our humanness um, towards praise of uh, the one who made us and loves us. Yeah. And I want to pick up on that term love that you use, because we've been talking about desire, which can be sometimes not healthy. Like I want to eat the whole pan of brownies. That would not be healthy. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it's necessary. It just simply is. Um, but then you move to love and we know love like a parent to a child. And we know uh, a love between two adults, as you mentioned, with marriage. Talk a little bit about how you see this love. Augustine talks about love um, quite a bit. What about love in relation to desire and to body and all of that? Yeah, can you say more what you're thinking? I, I yeah. Well, I just, I just, if desire, desire sometimes for me feels like it can be kind of negative or it, it makes me nervous. But when mm -hmm. I hear the word love, somehow that feels okay. It feels good. God is love. We're to love each other. Mm -hmm. How does that love piece factor into when you talk about human sexuality? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think desire makes us nervous because it's been bent under the condition of sin, right? Um, so I, I think ultimately desire is a good, um, uh, but it's a good uh, always connected to love. And at the risk of sounding trite, I really do think it all comes down to love. God is love. Um, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love each other eternally and invite us into their love um, as we're attached to Jesus uh, in the Spirit um, and invite us to love each other uh, as well, right? Love God, love neighbor. 
Desire, I think, can often be pretty fickle, right? Um, uh, and this is a problem we think about all the time in terms of marriage. Uh, that feeling of being in love isn't always there. Um, but people will say love is always there. And I, I think the distinction's right, right? Desire ebbs and flows, it comes and goes. Um, and uh, love is a commitment, uh, a relational commitment. Uh, which as humans, we live out in the body um, in all kinds of ways that include uh, our sexual relationships, but go far beyond our sexual relationships, right? I'm, the embodied life of a marriage is not just the bed. Um, it's also the table and the vacuum cleaner and the tax papers that need to be sorted through. And right, uh, it's a whole life uh, together. Um, uh, and I think that is a, a love life, right? Um, a life in which uh, we act out our commitments to each other um, in the flesh, uh, in, in love. Um, so I don't know that I want to make a hard line between love and desire, but I think it can help us to think about you know, the fickleness of some of our feelings um, and the constancy of uh, what happens in a vowed relationship uh, where we commit to staying in things despite feelings. Um, and that has an analogy to our relationships with God as well, right? For most Christians, um, there are days when we feel in love with God and there are days when we're not feeling it. Um, but from God's end, things are steady, they're constant, and we can rest in that um, and live in our uh, love relationship uh, with God, despite what our feelings might be today or yesterday or tomorrow. Yes, yes. Before we get into, there are a couple of questions that are going to be a little bit more targeted. Um, but before we do that, Pastor John had another question. Um, is it more helpful to speak of rightly ordered slash disordered when speaking about sexuality? I like those categories. Um, they're they're very Augustine-y kind of categories. Um, and I find them really helpful um, for uh, thinking about how humans are always directed somewhere, right? Uh, uh, order suggests um, order to, um, right? So if we're ordered to God, then things are as they ought to be, we're rightly ordered. And if our desires and our loves have spun off in other directions, right? Uh, towards lust, towards money, towards fame, right? Um, then we're experiencing disordered uh, love. Uh, and Augustine thinks of the healing God does in our lives as at least partially a healing of our loves, a reordering of our loves so that they can be uh, gathered up towards God. Uh, there are other ways to think about it as well, but but those categories seem to me to be um, very human um, and sort of pastorally accurate. Augustine was a pastor um, and he, he had lots of conversations with people about these kinds of things, as well as experiencing his own loves uh, as in need of being ordered, in need of being ordered uh, by the power of the spirit. Yeah. One of the questions Michael asks is a pretty specific question in, in the whole area of, of um, sexuality about masturbation for married people and single people in your theology of sex. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, um, that particular question. Yeah, um, I'll try not to be too frustrating in refusing to answer, <laughs> um, but it really is my goal first as a teacher to say, let's look at the big picture pieces here, right? What is sex is about? What is it for? Uh, it's about embodied faithfulness, right, uh, to one's spouse in a way that uh, mirrors God's faithfulness to us. Um, 
when you have those bigger picture pieces in place, then you can ask the questions about whether this act or that act, um, whether it can be discerned as a good idea. Um, for almost the whole of the Christian tradition, uh, masturbation has been considered a bad idea, uh, precisely because it's isolated uh, when sex is meant to be relational. Um, and I think there's a lot of wisdom there, um, but because of changed views of human sexuality and sort of how human development works, um, some Christians now advocate otherwise. Um, and I do think it's an area for discernment with, with bigger pictures of, uh, bigger picture theological things in place first. Yeah. yeah. Early on uh, in our conversation, you talked about the Roman Empire. And here's a question, what similarities and differences do you find between the views on sexuality in the Roman Empire and the United States? And I think placing that also in a context that helps us better understand the biblical text, the New Testament, mm -hmm. uh, would be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I think this question is really fun. So cut me off if I if I get going uh, for too long. But um, two ways. Uh, first, in terms of gender roles, right? Uh, in Rome, masculinity is about control, power, right? Um, and we in the U.S. today are still tempted to define masculinity that way. Uh, Christian sexual ethics uh, subverts that. Uh, by, for instance, um, when Paul says uh, to married couples, uh, both to husbands and to wives, your body is not your own, right? Um, that's a kind of subversion of the masculine uh, control. Um, in Rome, femininity uh, was primarily uh, about uh, uh, motherhood, if you were a citizen, right? Uh, or um, sexual availability, if you were a slave. Um, women sort of being reduced to their sexuality. Um, and Christianity uh, refuses to so reduce women. Uh, I think that also has good parallels today. So gender roles, the other big area is in terms of sex and the marketplace, um, sex being commodified. Um, one of the most salient features of sexuality in ancient Rome was um, uh, the uh, prevalence of prostitution, uh, of sex for sale, right? Uh, there were lots and lots of enslaved people, um, and those people had no control over how their bodies were used sexually. Um, and that was even considered a social good, right? It, it kept the boys in check to let them go off with the prostitutes and, and so on. Um, so sex uh, was often very much put into uh, the category of transaction, right? Uh, something to be exchanged uh, for money. Um, now, thankfully, uh, uh, prostitution is maybe not as common uh, in our culture, but the connections between sex and the marketplace are, um, they're still there in prostitution, but also in pornography, also in every suggestion that sex might be used to trade for favors, right? Um, or to get your spouse to do what you want them to do. Uh, Christianity pulls sex out of the context of the marketplace. It says it's not a commodity. It's not something to buy and sell. Um, uh, it's a gift, right? Um, it's a relational gift uh, about relational unity. And uh, that's pretty radical, um, I think, in Rome and, and in the U.S. as well. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, the Madeline has a question. Um, we're switching gears just a little bit. Can you speak more about embracing Christian sexuality as a single person? Mm -hmm. 
Can you find sexual fulfillment in celibacy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so what I want to affirm most strongly, um, and I go into this more in more detail in the, the Seminary Now course, as well as in the book, um, is that singleness is a healthy, holistic way of living an embodied life. Right? Um, and if our um, job as Christians, uh, if our, our telos as Christians is to point our bodies towards God, um, then singleness is just as good a place to do that as is marriage. Right? Um, and in some ways, according to Paul, a better place. Right? So can one find sexual fulfillment as a celibate single person? Um, I think there's probably always going to be longing there or a sense of lack. But can one pour one's bodily in energies into loving the world for God's sake? Absolutely. Right. Um, and uh uh, marriage, in fact, requires that a person uh, devote a lot of their bodily energies towards spouse and children, right, in a way that often means saying no to other possibilities of loving, other possible calls in their lives. And singleness involves uh, a, a freedom for, for that kind of love. So I don't want to deny um, the lack and the longing that are, are part of the Christian call to celibate singleness. Um, but I want to say really strongly, it's a good life, right? Um, and it's not a life in which uh, you're condemned to not uh, loving with your body. <laughs> there are all kinds of ways to love with our bodies um, besides uh, the way of marriage. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to follow up um, with uh, felt. Big Rev Machine uh, is wondering about what theological truths might we glean from the singleness of Jesus. And as you're getting ready to answer that, I recall a encounter that I had. This was probably 10 years ago at a social event um, where my kids were participating in a sport. And I was talking with a woman who had indicated she was um, encouraging her daughters when they went off to college to um, use birth control, she wanted them to um, experiment in ways that she had not. And, and I just said, well, you know, there's also though a, um, a tradition that many religions have about the goodness of celibacy, you know, Jesus and Paul being celibate. And she just said, oh yeah, come on, really? Jesus and, and Paul celibate? She could not imagine someone having a fulfilled life if they weren't what we would call sexually active. So I really love this question, what theological truths might we glean from the singleness of Jesus? Yeah, so first truth to be gleaned, right? Singleness is a fulfilling life. Yeah. Uh, if we're all called to um, pour out our loves in the body for, for God and neighbor, uh, we see in Jesus uh, the perfect example of that, right? The holiness, the most complete example of that. And he does that as a single um, person. Um, and think of all the ways that he that he pours himself out um, from beginning to end, but of course, most clearly in the cross um, and uh, uh, in um his body and, and his blood uh, as we as we remember the cross, right? Uh, when we receive at the table. Um, many Christians uh, uh, are guilty, I think, of suggesting 
um, that you have to be married to be mature, that you have to be married to be holy, that you have to be married to grow up or to, to uh, live a good life. Um, the singleness of Jesus is the clear rebuttal of that suggestion, right? Uh, Jesus is mature. <laughs> he's grown up. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Um, and he is not married. Um, and I think to your question, Lynn, about whether we can imagine that or not, right? Jesus is a place to help imagine it. Um, and there are countless other single Christians to be respected and emulated throughout the tradition, but but Jesus most of all, right? As examples of how um, a fruitful, fulfilled life can be a life without marriage and, and sex. And I think that word fruitful is really important, right? Um, it's there in Genesis, uh, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and every Christian longs for fruitfulness. Um, babies can be a part of that. Babies are great. God loves them. Um, but in Christian faith, babies are not the main part of that, right? Jesus's fruitfulness um, in making disciples um, and his calling us to fruitfulness in evangelism and in bearing the fruit of the Spirit um, are um, fulfillments of that mandate from Genesis, right? Um, even more um, than raising babies is, though it is too. Yeah, yeah. yes. Is there uh, any chance that in the future you might create a guide? Abby is asking this um, to the book so that it could be used to uh, dis have discussions in small groups. Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think I'd have to talk to the publisher about what the, the details of that might uh, look like. Um, uh, though I'm fairly active online and I suppose I could uh, put something out there. If you're interested in using uh, the book or um, um, uh, the Seminary Now course uh, for a small group, uh, you can also get in contact with me online um, uh, and I'd be happy to help you think that through as well. well yeah. Do you have any um, kind of closing words of hope or encouragement? I mean, the whole conversation has been one of encouragement, but as as we close our time, what what would you like to leave us? Yeah. With? We live in a time where there's a lot of pessimism, uh, a lot of apocalyptic yelling about uh, sex and sexuality, um, but there is hope uh, in the gospel. Um, there is uh, forgiveness and transformation and renewal and holiness um, uh, available to, to each and all of us. Um, and sexuality is an area in which I think all of us have been broken, um, uh, whether we have sinned or been sinned against or both, right? All of us have experienced broken here, brokenness in this area, but there is healing for that brokenness. Um, and uh, there is a new life in Christ. And that is so much more true and more important than the apocalyptic yellings. Um, uh, no matter how bad things are, um, God's power is bigger, um, and uh, God has good plans for us, body and soul. Amen. Yes. Well, Beth, your book, Faithful, is just fantastic. So I encourage everyone to run out and buy a couple copies and give them as Christmas gifts also because, you know, after all. To all your teenagers who will be so delighted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's great to be with you all. It's great to be with you, Lynn. Yes, thank you. Well, and I want everybody to check out Seminary Now, right? Look at your course and many of the other ones on seminarynow.com. We're just so thrilled. Beth, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this webinar. 
and uh, yeah, and for all the good work that you're doing in this very important topic of human sexuality. My privilege. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we've included links in today's episode description to Beth's Seminary Now course and her book, Faithful, A Theology of Sex. We upload new episodes every Tuesday, so subscribe, share with your friends, and join us back here next week for another episode of the Alabaster Jar.